It's a, a privilege to be sharing God's word with you again this morning. And I have to apologise because last week, I think I said to you that that was the last sermon I was going to uh, deliver on the Sermon on the Mount. I did, didn't I? Well, it wasn't uh, a purpose like. Um, Having reviewed the material again, I did want to close up. I thought that we didn't give the last two verses enough of an emphasis, which was a closing two verses. So I'm going to do that today, and today we'll, we'll have a bit of a look back at, uh, at the, uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount and what, um, what it meant, and, and, and what it meant in, um, in relation to these last two verses, what these last two verses mean in relation to the whole thing. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, which will be the final or concluding sermon uh, on this series, which I hope you've been blessed through, because I know I have. And today we're going to be looking at verse 28 and 29, so read with me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. It says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, once again for your precious word. And we thank you for our Lord and our Saviour who delivered these words to us. Who boldly preached the truth and gave up his life willingly for it and for us. Father, we just uh, pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts now as as we seek to understand your word. And we seek to be taught by you. So we thank you once again for this time. We thank you that we can glorify you in this way. And we pray that as we leave this place today, that our hearts would be knit a little closer to you and our uh, challenge of our lives, Father, that we would be living uh, more and more for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm not the type of person who gets surprised too much. I... Sometimes I'm sitting in a, in, a, in a room in my house and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be doing my stuff and then I'll hear, ah! at the end of the house. And I know that generally means one of two or three things. That a spider has made itself um, manifest uh, to a certain person and that person is surprised. Okay? Whereas if I see a spider, I, I don't get surprised and then... Some of you would get surprised and some of you wouldn't, depending on the size and the shape and the proximity of the spider. There aren't too many things. I don't tend to get surprised or shocked too often. Um, But there are some times in my life that I remember being completely impacted by what was going on. Uh, 9-11 was probably one of those times when I was at home, I remember that evening, and I was just watching TV. And I think I was reading and then, and then trying to watch the news as well. And then all of a sudden this thing came up. Of this, They just showed you, I'm not sure if you remember the image, of the building with smoke coming out of it. And while they're talking about, you know, the, the, the journalists are there on, on the TV and you're thinking, wow, look at that. That's, the, you know, there's smoke coming out of the side. You're thinking, what's going on there? Then all of a sudden while they're talking, while the journalists are there with this image in the background, another plane flies into the actual building. And you think, what was that? And I remember that was like, that impacted me so much. It's, it's one of those images in my mind that I, I probably will never forget. 
And I remember um, uh, making a phone call uh, to the States to find out you know, if anyone knew more about what was going on. That was one of those things. The other thing that probably impacted me um, from a, a worldly point of view was a tsunami that happened in Japan. The images of, the, of that, that water rushing through and just devouring uh, farms and houses and cars and, and everything like that, for me, like, was, it just images stuck in my mind. That shocked me. Those things astonish me from a worldly point of view. Uh, <clears throat> but the, as, I, as I thought more about it, <clears throat> I, I realised how astonished I'm still at it with God's word. There are, there are things that happen on a daily basis and you see God's word actually living and alive and you, and you, read, you read something and as you study something, you realise it actually, thank you, you realise um, the way God's word is written, that every little bit of it, it actually applies to one thing or another. I still get astonished when people get saved. When, when one person can be one way for the majority of their life and then overnight you see this transformation taking place or this, trans, this, this whole new pers- person come out and <coughs> think God's grace is amazing. That sort of things that astonish me. Um, what astonishes you? What are the sort of things that you... That you are you surprised by? Are you bewildered by or amazed by? Um, you, as you think, you probably have a few images coming to mind. Well, in this particular passage, the Bible says that as, as Jesus ended his sayings, and mind you, we've been through three chapters of Matthew. That would have been listening to, to Jesus give this or deliver this incredible uh, sermon. It says that they were astonished. It says, it says they were astonished at his doctrine. It says because he taught them, that word for, is because he taught them one having authority and not as the scribes. So the way he spoke. So it wasn't just what he said, right? Because the, the, it's amazing what he said in and of itself. But for these, these people, they were amazed at the way he spoke. That no one actually spoke like this before. Because the people they were used to getting their teachings from, the scribes and the Pharisees, would often have to cite other people. They'd have to reference, oh, so-and-so interprets this passage to mean this, and -and so-and-so interprets it, so we believe that this is the way it should be. Instead, Jesus says, you know, I say. Doesn't doesn't reference anyone else. I say. This is is how it is. So go back with me. Let's go back to uh, to chapter 5. So I'd like to share just, just some things, just to highlight how differently Jesus would have preached compared to other people and, and how significant his teaching was. Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 10, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now understand something from those from those three verses. Jesus says, Blessed are they which are persecuted. 
for righteousness sake. Okay, in other words, blessed are they which stand for the truth, which stand for right, for justice, which stand for God's word. Because if you're persecuted for that, the Bible says that you are given heaven as a reward. But then Jesus doesn't just stop there. He says, blessed are they when, when, when they persecute you because of me. For, for, when you stand up for me and what I'm teaching. Because he then says, the reward is exactly the same. It says, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who are before you. Hang on a sec. Were the prophets in the Old Testament standing up for Jesus? Were they persecuted for Jesus' sake? Jesus equating the stand on the truth and the stand for righteousness as a stand for him. It's one and the same. Both reward are the same. Both rewards are the same. They're heaven. So if you're standing for the truth or you're standing for Jesus, you're standing for the very same thing. Now, no other teacher would have ever said anything like that. They would not have heard anyone else in history. And no one else in history has ever said that, that they represent the truth. And if you stand for them, you're standing for the truth. There's no other teacher or scribe who would have equated themselves and the reward for doing that the way Jesus did. Now look at verse 21 in chapter 5. I'll go through just a few examples here because I want you to understand something else. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall, be, uh, sh uh, shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Look at verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Look at verse 38. Ye have heard that it has been said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Look at verse 43. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You notice something there? Oftentimes, people refer to the older references or the older teachers as the more authoritative. Do you understand? So a teaching that has been around for a long... We do the same thing. A teaching that has been around for a longer time is more established, has been tested and proven. People cite that as the reference point and say... You know, the Jews might say, Rabbi, you know, so-and-so said in the year, you know, 500, this, this particular teaching, and it's held all this time. Now, Jesus says, it's been said to you of old time. It's been said to you from a long time ago, this is what you should be doing. And Jesus says, forget about that. Let me tell you where the truth is. You know why? Because Jesus is much older than the oldest reference they could ever have. And the authority 
about that teaching doesn't come from the interpretation of men. It comes from the author himself. Jesus is the author. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said of old time, this is what it means when you commit adultery, or this is what it means that you should do with your enemy, let me tell you what you should do. In other words, disregard all the other teachings that you've had before. Disregard them, because they've led you in the wrong direction. Let me tell you what those, what those verses really mean. Now, that's an amazing thing. Because there was no other teacher who would have said that. There was no other teacher who would have got up and would have been bold enough to say those, all those guys were wrong. All those people who came before me, they were wrong with what they taught you. Let me tell you what the truth is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us how to give. Remember about giving alms? He taught us how to pray, how to fast. He taught us about judgment and hypocrisy. To emulate God because God is perfect and he should be the one that we are looking to, to be like. He, wa- he warned us about false teachers. And then he concludes his sermon with the expectation that a person who believed in him, okay, it wasn't enough for them just to say, Lord, to say, Master, but that they had to actually obey what he said. It wasn't enough for them just to say it. He said that they have to be able to do it as well. And then look at Matthew 7, verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Whose sayings? Jesus' sayings. Do you think that everything that he said in, in that sermon that he gave on the mount was the very first time it had been ever said? Do you know, as I've, as I've done study in this area... Some people have said that there were, there were people who actually said similar things before and used the same type of preaching style in certain parts as Jesus did. What would happen if someone actually had said what Jesus said before? I asked myself. What would that mean? Would it mean that Jesus had copied them? Well, I don't think so. Because if someone, if someone is able to properly interpret the scripture and they say the truth, where do they get that truth from? God? If someone reads the scripture, properly interprets it and says, this is the way you should, you should um, live the scripture, where did they get that teaching from? They got it from God. So it makes sense that Jesus says all those teachings are his. Even if someone had said the same thing before. Because where did they get it from? They got it from him originally. Because he was the one who taught them that truth. Because he is the truth. People were astonished at him. They were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them, the Bible says, as one who had authority. Now that that means he had the right. He owned it. He had the expertise in it. When they compared the way he taught, the way the Pharisees or their regular teachers taught, he was very different. 
Jesus said that these teachings were his. The words were his. The application of the scripture that he taught was final. He refuted everyone else who disagreed with him. He placed himself as himself at the very heart of the scriptures. And he taught in essence that the scriptures were the ones that were talking about him. In all the teachings, in all the things that the scriptures said and gave command him and, and taught him, from the beginning to the end, he said, they're all about me. They're all about me. You know why they're all about him? Because he's the one who gave them from the beginning. He is the author, and the author wrote this story about himself. This is, in a sense, what we call an autobiography. This story is about Jesus. So he owned it, and he owns it from beginning to end. And it wasn't just a wonderful teaching he delivered, the, tr the wonderful biblical um, teaching that revolved around him. It's, it's every part of him. It's, it's that every word that, that he uttered, every word that was written beforehand revolved like the earth revolves around the sun. It revolved around him. We've come to understand that Jesus, why Jesus spoke the way he did. We understand that now because we have the scriptures full and complete. And we understand that Jesus could say that, you know, the scriptures were all about him. And we, we can understand why Jesus would say everyone else was wrong before him. And he could refute anyone. We could understand how Jesus says, they've told you of old time, but I tell you. We could, we could understand how Jesus says, you call me Lord, but you need to obey as well. Because we understand he's the son of God. We understand he is God eternal, who came into this world to save men from their sins. We understand that. We have the privilege of understanding that, that great truth. And he's the one who gave the scriptures to men. He's the one who taught it to men. And he's the one who was now standing on a hill, teaching the very thing, the very words that he had given thousands of years before. And Jesus was eloquent and authoritative in his, in his speech right from day one. Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Let me ask you a question. Has my preaching improved over the last eight years? Yes. I'm glad. I'm glad. That shows something very important, that I'm actually human, all right? And that I'm actually working to improve. And I'm glad, because it should be. I shouldn't be going backwards, should I? If I was going backwards, I'd have been in a whole lot of trouble. But I'm growing in the way I preach. And this is not about me. But I want you to understand something. Jesus ministered for three years, okay? Jesus didn't have to grow in his preaching. Jesus, the way Jesus spoke and the authoritative nature in which he spoke was as it was at the beginning to the end. He spoke with that authority from the day one of his ministry. Look, at, look what it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Because this is just after he's called his first disciples. He's been to the wilderness. He's come back. 
And now he's going into Capernaum with his, with his uh, very first uh, the disciples. And it says there, And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And look what it says. And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Heard that somewhere before? He did it from day one. He had this tremendous... He'd walk behind a pulpit, stand behind the pulpit, and the way he would talk would captivate people. They would listen to him and say, how is this guy talking like this? And they'd often ask the question, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know his brothers and sisters and his, and his relatives over here? Didn't he grow up over here around here? How's this guy? Where does he know all this stuff? Amazing. Jesus didn't have to grow. Jesus didn't have to. He had the authority from day one. As soon as God had sent him on that, on that ministry and he started on day one, he spoke with the authority because that was who he was. And his authority was so strong. The way he spoke to people was so compelling, was so powerful. He even had his opposition bamboozled. Turn to John chapter 7. I find this story really funny, to be honest with you. John chapter 7, look what, look what it says in verse 32. All right? Now Jesus is, has gone into the temple and he's preaching in the temple. Now, is Alan here? No. Okay. When Jesus is in the temple, the, the, the temple had its own security guards, it had its own governance, it had its own hierarchy of who, what you could do and what you couldn't do. Remember Alan explained you had the outer court and the court of the Gentiles and you had the inner court and then only certain people were able to go here and there and do certain things. There were a lot of strict rules and regulations about what you could, you could and couldn't do in there. Now Jesus has gone into the temple and he starts preaching. He starts teaching people over there. And it says in verse 32, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. They were saying, is this the Christ? Is this the prophet that the one who's... You know, so while he's teaching them, there's a murmuring going on among all the people that are there. And it says, And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Sent officers to take him. You know the guys with the badges on the on the phone? Go and get that guy over there and bring him over here to us. We want to know what, what's going on over there. He's causing a, he's causing a problem. Go and, go and get him. Look what it says in verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is the prophet. Others, says, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Let's <laughs> understand what's going on. They send the police, they send the security guards, go and get that guy over there because he's causing a problem. He's teaching stuff that he shouldn't be teaching. 
People are getting confused. They're saying he's the Christ. What's going on over here? Go and, go and get him. The officers, they go there, they have a listen to what's going on, and they turn straight back around and go back. So they head back to the Pharisees and the, and the priests, and the, and the Pharisees and the priests say, where is he? Which, did you bring him? We haven't heard anyone talk of this guy over here. We've never heard anyone like this. And the response of the Pharisees is, has he also tricked you as well? Jesus even had his opposition bamboozled. The authority with which he spoke even floored them. Jesus is astonishing because he has ultimate authority over the truth. Like that? Jesus is astonishing because he has the authority over the truth. But let me, that's not the only thing that's astonishing about Jesus, is it? That he has authority over the truth. That when he speaks, he's speaking the exact truth and he claims it as his own. There are other things that make Jesus astonishing. And I want to share just a few of those with you this morning. Turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Mark chapter 7 verse 31. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of the Capolis. And they brought unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment, impediment that's what I've got, uh, in his speech. And they beseech him to bring, put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in, into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven and sighed and saith unto him, Ephathah, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so the more a great deal. They published this and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. But were they astonished? Oh, yeah. They were astonished. The guy who couldn't speak, who was deaf, and they, they see him pull him to the side, and after, after a few moments, he comes back talking and hearing. Astonishing. Would that have been something they would have easily forgotten? No way. That would have been something they would have gone back, and the Bible says here, the more he said to them, quiet, don't go, don't go making a big deal about it. The more they went out screaming it, the more they'd go back to their families and friends and say, Did you hear what happened? Which is a natural thing to do. During his earthly ministry, Jesus healed people of many diseases and infirmities. He cured people of blindness, deafness, lameness, leprosy, and countless other sicknesses. Jesus is astonishing because he has authority over sickness and disease. 
he has authority over it. He's astonishing because he has authority over sickness and disease. And the miracle here was incredible because if you think of it, think of this. A person who is deaf and can't speak, why don't they speak properly? What is a person... Have you heard a person who's deaf speak? Okay. It's because they can't hear the word themselves. So they're trying, they're trying to, to say it, but without getting any feedback, it's difficult to see whether you actually sound right or not. Okay? So that's something that's learned, but then if you've done it for a number of years, that's the way you naturally do it then after. It's the way your, your tongue naturally... So let's assume that this person was deaf, but they weren't speaking properly because they couldn't, they couldn't hear the words. So they never got to the stage where they could properly pronounce any words. Now, what, this is what happens. Jesus heals the person. Immediately, they get the hearing back. But you know what what's, I find amazing? That the Bible says that he spoke plain. Plain. Which means he didn't have to learn all the words again. Do you understand that? Because someone who's given a, someone who was born deaf, let's say they've been deaf for years, and they give them a bionic ear, and all of a sudden, let's say that bionic ear works 100%, which it never does. It might give them 10% of their hearing, okay? Let's say they got perfect hearing back. Would they speak properly? No way. It would take them a long time to relearn the words. It would take them a long time to get to, get to understand and, and, and pronounce the words properly because they would still have to hear the way the words were pronounced by other people before they pronounced them properly. Yet this guy is taken aside by Jesus... Jesus cures his, his, his deafness, which is incredible, and comes back talking properly. Where did he learn? The miracle didn't just include fixing an ear or loosing a tongue. The miracle included fixing the brain. The miracle included the learning in an instant. That I find incredible. He didn't have to go through rehabilitation. He didn't have to go through any learning or classes to, to relearn how to speak. He learnt to speak in an instant. There is no medical or natural explanation that, could ex to, that can ex explain this thing even today. And naturally, the people would have been absolutely astonished, as the scriptures say here. Often in Jesus' day, people were or had infirmities or had problems because of demonic possession as well. They were being, they were being influenced by, by demons. Okay? So you'll notice a lot in scripture, it mentions illness and demonic possession in the same, at the same time. It equates those two things because often... Demonic possession manifested itself in illnesses and, and fits and those types of things. So, Jesus didn't just heal physical illness or, or, or sickness. Jesus also healed people of demonic possession, which manifested itself in that way as well. Turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 1. It says here, it says, then, then he called 
his 12 <laughs> disciples together. And he gave, he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, Jesus' authority over sickness and the de- and demonic was so complete. It was so, it was so perfect, that authority, that he could give that authority to other people. He gave the same authority that he had to his disciples. That's how complete his own authority was. And said, I now give you power over sickness and disease and the demons. So much so that he could send them off two by two and they would go and heal those people of those things. That's how complete his authority over those things was. Now that's incredible authority. So Jesus is astonishing because he has complete authority over sickness and the demonic. And even, you might think that's, and when you think about that, it's almost a little bit strange. Because, you know, remember that that man that he came across in the middle of the, um, he was living in the uh, the cemetery, the man of the Gadarenes. And the, the man was possessed by many, by many demons and he was that they tried to chain him up, and he, not even chains could hold this guy. And he was running around naked all over the place, causing people problems. He comes to Jesus comes to him, and immediately he, he falls down. Not just with one demon. This this fellow had legion within him, many. And the the response of the demons was, do you remember? What have you to do with us? What what what, what do you want to do with us? Don't 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 uh, don't do anything to us. Don't cast us into the into the abyss, because they knew he had authority to cast them into into the abyss, into hell. At his at his word, he could do that. That's how much power Jesus had, because he was the Son of God. He had the authority to do it at any moment. Jesus is astonishing because he had authority over the angelic realm, and over all sicknesses and illnesses of men and women. Turn to Luke chapter 5, verse verse 4 now. Luke chapter 5, verse 4 says... Now, when he had left speaking, now Jesus had just finished preaching a sermon from a boat, and he said to Peter, cast it out. Okay, so it says in verse, verse 4, Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch, launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a, for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night, we have worked all night, Lord, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so they, they, that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was... Astonished. And all that were with him 
at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. Now, you might think, is this one of those miracles that you think is a... Does it rank up there with you for, you know, when people... When Jesus cures blindness and those things, you might think, oh, was it a lucky... Was it a lucky thing that happened? That he just managed to, to drop the net on the side of the boat that, you know, and just happened to be the biggest catch they'd ever, they'd ever caught, big enough to fill up two ships that were, you know, that were sinking as well because it was so loaded. No, no, there was no luck in this. They had been working all night. They had been dropping nets after, uh, time after time after time after time after time. Here comes Jesus and says, you know, just cast out and drop it there. Did Jesus have one of those... Have you seen those radar things in the boats? Did Jesus have a radar that he was watching? No, no, he didn't have anything like that. Did Jesus need a radar? No. This thing was so astonishing. This, this, this miracle was so, was so intense, was so amazing, that it caused Peter to fall down and say, get away from me. Don't come anywhere near me because I'm a sinful person. He realised at that stage who Jesus was. Jesus didn't need any, any uh, particular advice from anyone else. He knew exactly where the fish were going to be before they dropped that net. He didn't need any special lures, any techniques, any special fishing uh, uh, processes. Jesus knew where to cast a net to catch those fish because guess what? Jesus was the creator of the fish. Jesus knew at every point where the fish were going to be. And you know something even more amazing? The fish obeyed him. The fish obeyed him. If he wanted the fish to be in a particular place at a particular time, he had to give, all he had to do was just give the command and the fish would be there waiting for him. Do you remember the other time in the boat where they were, they were out together and, you know, and, and the, the, the guys, the, the disciples are in the boat and there's a storm raging all around them. And they see him walking towards them on the water. And they thought they were seeing a ghost and they, they all panicked. Um, and that's when, when Peter said, you know, if it's really you, call me out onto the water with you. And he does. And he walks in water. Another time that they were in the boat together and Jesus was sleeping in the, in the, in the bottom of the boat. And there was such a, a wind and a wave that they all thought they were going to die. And when they, said, when they called Jesus and said, you know, wake up, Lord, Master, don't, don't you care about us? We're all going to die here. He said, relax. And he, and he calmed the sea with a word. Jesus is astonishing because he has authority, complete authority over all of nature. He has complete authority over all of nature. He's authority over sickness and demons. He's authority over the truth. He has authority over all of nature. You get in the picture? He's astonishing. One of the incredible things that makes Jesus astonishing that he has authority over life and death. He has authority over death. Turn to Luke chapter 24 with me. I 
was wondering which, which example to use in this one because there are a number of examples where Jesus raises people from the dead. But I thought, you know what the best example is? Where he raises himself from the dead. <laughs> what's, a, what's a more difficult thing to do? To, to pray to the Lord to get, to, to get someone risen from the dead or when you've already been killed to actually raise yourself? Look at, look at Luke chapter 24, 22. And the women had gone to the women had gone to the um, to the tomb, and, and it says here, "Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished." The story they were telling was astonishing, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us um, went to the sepulchre and found it even so. The women had said. But him they saw not. Then he said unto them, remember he was walking with them on the road to Emmaus. He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expanded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said that he had to fulfill that. He had to die. He had to, to go to the cross and he had to be raised again. For these things to, to come to pass and that all the things that were written about him revolved around this this major event that took place and during his earthly ministry Jesus raised people from the dead we know the story about Lazarus and, and the, the widow's son there's a number of places where Jesus simply says rise he has authority over death and even when, when they were crucifying him the Bible says that there was an earthquake and that tombs were, were, were broken open and people that were dead started walking around again as a, as a witness to what was going on. So what has happened? Jesus has authority and he's astonishing because he's authority over death. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 it says, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. He has the keys. Hell and death. He has authority over life, death, nature, sickness, demons, and everything that we see around us. He has authority and he is astonishing. Not only does Jesus have authority over hell and death, but he carries the authority to judge all men and sentence them to an eternity in hell. He has all authority to judge as well. It will be one day his voice that the dead shall hear and be raised to everlasting life. It will be at his throne at which the unsaved will have to give an account of themselves and be judged according to their works. Turn to John chapter 5 with me. We're done. John chapter 5 verse 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? That last, that last phrase. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Man has no excuse. You know, one day everyone will stand before the throne of Christ. And they won't be able to say, God, you didn't understand what I was going through over here. You've been sitting on your throne all this time and you don't understand the pain, the hurt, the suffering and all the, all the headaches we go through as people over here. You can't really judge us because you don't understand. The Bible says that Jesus was given authority to judge because he's the son of man, not just the son of God. When Jesus judges a person, the person can't say you don't understand. Jesus understands more than well. Jesus understands fully what it is that men do in their hearts and what they, and what they hold and, and the choices they make. He understands completely. But the Bible also says that he's able to succor those, which means he empathises with us. He understands our weaknesses, our infirmities. So he's able to sympathise with the struggles we go through. But at the same time, a person can't go can't live their life, reject the gospel, stand before the throne of God and say, you don't understand what I went through. You'll say, I understand fully what you went through. And this is the punishment for what you've actually done. Jesus has been given full authority to judge. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. There will come a day when every person will find themselves in front of this astonishing person. They'll find themselves in front of him. And he's astonishing because he's demonstrated all authority over truth. He is astonishing because... He has demonstrated authority over all of creation. He is astonishing because he has demonstrated authority over all of life and death and everything that there exists because he is the Son of God. And you know why he's astonishing today? Because he still speaks today through his word. Remember the thing I told you about? It's amazing, the word of God, how it changes people's hearts. It's because Jesus, the sermon that he gave on, on that mountain, on that hill, that day, and they said to him, wow, look at this guy, the way he's talking. I've never heard anyone speak like this before. He speaks with authority as if, as if he is the author of all truth. And that's true. When we read God's word today, he speaks the same way to you and me. He still speaks with that authority. When we read the word of God, those are his words. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, does it stir you in your heart? When you read the Word of God and you, and you see it lived out in, in, in people's lives, does it not cause you to be astonished today? Because it does to me. Because they're His words. And He continues to speak. And He speaks with the same authority that He spoke with on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Be astonished at his word. Be astonished. Because the Bible says that that word cuts straight to the heart. It divides the joint and the marrow. It, it, it discerns every thought and intent of a person. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And then verse 61 it says, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. Do you stand in awe of the word of God this morning? Does it affect you? Because I'll, I'll, I want to share something with you. If you aren't moved by the word of God, if it doesn't stir you when you read it, if you don't hold it in awe and esteem, if you don't regard as precious the words within it, then let me ask you a question. If you can't regard the words of Christ as precious, can you regard him as precious? If the word of God does nothing to you today, tell me, does Jesus do anything to you today? If you, want, if you don't find his word astonishing, do you find him astonishing? Because this is what I want us to understand and go and walk away with. If the word of God does nothing to you, if there is nothing astonishing about the word of God to you today, then do you really find Jesus astonishing? Because I, I would struggle to understand how you could have one without the other. Does your heart stand in awe of the incredible word of God? Have you ever thought about the concept that within your hands, within, within the, the pages of this book, are the words of a God, of the only God who has written those words to you? And every word is infallible, every word is true, every word is trustworthy, every word has authority. Are you astonished by it? It's not enough just to be astonished. I know I've, I've, I've made the whole sermon about being astonished. But sometimes people are astonished and don't do anything about it. Sometimes people get surprised with something and they don't follow through. This is what I think we should, we should be like. Turn to Acts chapter 9 verse 3 and we'll close up with this. was a man who did not find the truth of God astonishing. In fact, he found it so not astonishing that he went around killing people who did find it astonishing. And his, his job was to persecute, to hunt down Christians and to make sure that they were eradicated. But then on a, on a particular travel, on a particular road to a place called Damascus, this man while riding on a, on a horse, I think it was, has an encounter. It says in verse in chapter, Acts chapter 9, verse 3, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the priests. And he, trembling, 
and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Today, as we contemplate, as we, we, we finish off this, this section called the Sermon on the Mount, and we reflect on what Jesus has taught us in those um, chapters, as we reflect on the authority that Jesus has over the truth, over life and death, over nature and everything in this universe, I want you to ask yourself one fundamental question. And it should be the same question that the Apostle Paul asked when he was astonished. Because if you're astonished by the things of God, you should be asking the same question that Paul asked in chapter 9, verse 6. And says, as he, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It's not about how much you know. It's not about being surprised. It's not about all this other stuff with bells and whistles. You know something? It's about an honest heart that says, Lord, you've told me something. What do you want me to do? Jesus says it's not enough to call him Lord. It's not enough just to say that you're a believer. It's not enough just to declare your allegiance. The Bible says that you are to obey. And in the obedience, the Bible says that we find life. So, are you astonished this morning at the word of God? Are you astonished at Jesus? If you are, if your heart stirred when you read his word, if, you, if, if Jesus still stirs you today, then ask the same question that the Apostle Paul asked. What do you want me to do? God bless you. Thanks.